Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. Innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Remember in Hebrews 11 there's a reason why it's called the hall of faith. Like I said, it began with an explanation of faith in verses 1 and 2. Then examples of faith in verses 4 and 5 and 7 all the way to verse 40. We considered Abel's worship. We considered Enoch's walk. We considered Noah's warning. We considered Abraham's obedience. And now we look at Sarah's willingness to believe the impossible. In the chapter, the writer speaks of the individual's faith. And then he speaks about their reward. Remember what Abel did. He presented an acceptable offering in worship. Enoch left the earth without dying. Noah survives a great flood. Abraham inherits a great promise. And Sarah... Sarah will bear a child, but not just any child, but a specific child, a child of promise. A barren womb will become a wondrous nation, not just simply a physical nation, but a spiritual nation. And faith is the assurance that the thing that God has said in his word is going to come true. Faith is the confidence that God will act according to what he has said in his word. It was Corey ten Boom who famously said, read it, faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, receives the impossible. Those of you who are unfamiliar with Corrie ten Boom, she was a Dutch patriot in World War II who, at the risk of her own life, hid Jews from Nazis. Tragically, some of her own family were killed in concentration camps. But it was her faith that sustained her in the darkest time of need. We have seen that faith's borders extend far beyond the simple system of belief, but it includes worship, it includes a walk, it includes waiting, it includes listening, it includes obeying. And now, Sarah is going to remind us of a faith that invites us to believe When the circumstances seem impossible. When the biology seems impossible. Faith expects from God what might seem on the surface as not possible. And by the way, Sarah's story along with her husband's story, Abraham, is found in Genesis chapter 12. 13, 14, 15. And as you march through the the passages all the way to chapter 24... 
And remember the last time we got together, I, I spoke of a promise that was given to Abraham, a sevenfold promise in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. What's interesting about the promise, it isn't simply given to Abraham. It's also given to Sarah. God said, I'll make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, I'd be less than honest with you if I suggested that Abraham's influence of faith and actions were always a great example to Sarah. We could speak of Abraham's courage rightly, but we could also speak of Abraham's cowardice and carnality. Isn't that so very much like each and every one of us? That there's moments when we shine and there are moments that, well, shine isn't the right word to describe what we're saying or thinking or doing. You'll remember when the land was in the midst of a great famine, Abraham left the promised land and he went down to Egypt. What's interesting in the book of Genesis is that's the first mention of Egypt in the Bible. The first mention of Egypt in the Bible is where the man of faith leaves the place of faith and goes to a place where he doesn't belong. Egypt becomes a type and a picture of the world in the Old Testament. And so later the Lord would say, Woe to them who go down to Egypt for help and trust in chariots and horsemen, but look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord, it says in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. In other words, a warning is given that we're not to place our confidence and trust in what this world can provide. So in a spiritual sense, when a Christian goes to Egypt, that means returns back to the world. When they seek to depend on someone or something other than the Lord, they're playing a dangerous game. And you'll remember when Abraham goes down to Egypt... He says to his wife, Sarah, you are a stone fox. Truthfully, you're probably the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. Everyone who looks at you is going to want you. And then they're going to look at me and they're going to want you even more. And they're going to try to kill me in order to take you. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to tell a complete lie. I want you to tell a sort of truth that we're brother and sister. By the way, was it true that they were brother and sister? And the answer is yes. They were half brother and half sister. But when you say to someone, this is my sister, and you leave out the part about her being your wife, you could leave people with the wrong impression. And so Pharaoh, seeing 
Sarah, as the stone fox that she was, decided that he was going to marry her. And so Pharaoh brought Sarah into his home. And the moment that he did it, his home was plagued by God. And eventually, Abraham's deception is discovered. Most of you know the story. Abraham not only grieved God, not only was he a poor testimony, not only did he cause Pharaoh to be afflicted, but he also, and this is part of the point that I want to make for you, is he weakened his wife's faith. Do you realize that that's exactly what compromise does? You see, the truth is my faith and your faith affect one another. You see, if I walk in rebellion and disobedience, is it going to have an effect on you? I think so. If you hear about me on The Tonight Show for some weird and wicked thing and they make fun of me for an entire week, the chances are I've done something to dishonor God and to dishonor the gospel and to dishonor the body of Christ. And you'll remember, it's in the course of going to Egypt that Abraham secures Hagar as a servant to his wife and later a mistress to himself. Because in their walk of faith, there are moments of doubt and there's moments of disobedience and there's moments of difficulty. It's going to create problems that are going to last, not just simply in their lifetime, but in every generation that follows. I want you to just think about that for just a moment. Just pause for a moment in your mind and think about the kind of faith that changes your children and your grandchildren and their children and their children's children. And think about a disappointment and a failure that affects your children and their children and their children's children. And so now, all of a sudden, we have a new look at an important part of this thing that we call faith. Look what it says in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. In Genesis chapter 18, we read the story of Abraham being met by two angels, the Lord himself near Hebron. And again, like I said, this last time I was in Israel, I got to visit the tomb in Hebron of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and Sarah. I literally walked into the cave of Machpelah and saw the place where they were buried. Abraham, you'll remember, instructs his wife, To prepare a meal in Genesis chapter 18, verse 6, Abraham runs to a herd and picks out a tender calf. As a matter of fact, what I think I'm going to have you do is turn to Genesis chapter 18 just very, very quickly. And of course, it's fairly easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible. If you go to chapter 1, just keep going until you get to chapter 18. It says in verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. This is the two angels in the Lord. These are the heavenly visitors that come by Abraham's tent as he's camped near Hebron. It says that he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And in verse 9 of chapter 18, it says, Then they said to him, 
Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, that fox, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. Now, pause for just a moment. When the Bible says you're old, chances are you're old. It's hard for me to understand about being old until I look in the mirror and I realize I just, I look like my grandpa, not my father. I look like my grandpa. You know, you're old is when you stoop down to like lift up your socks and then you realize I'm not wearing any socks. These guys are old. And I'll talk about how old they are in just a moment. Well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, "Uh, Why did Sarah laugh saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Can you imagine when the Lord busts you and you go, Hey, why did you do that? And you go, I didn't do that. And you realize God knows your heart and he knows your mind. He knows the secret things that you say when nobody else can hear you. Sarah overheard the promise of a son. She expressed doubt. She laughs in unbelief. And by the way, the Lord responds with, Is anything too hard? Underline that word. In the Hebrew language, and you put it in parentheses, it's the word that could also be translated wonderful. Have you ever read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, And he shall be called wonderful? Same word. Counselor. It means wonderful in, in, in the most absolutely amazing sense of the word. An idea that is so unbelievable that it's hard to express in our language. Sarah will have a son. Sarah denies. She laughs in unbelief. Now I want you to pause for just a moment because I want to ask you a question. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that Sarah's journey of faith experiences some bumps along the way? No, it it shouldn't, huh? Because remember what we've already seen. Very rarely does the Bible present the heroes of the faith exercising perfect faith. As a matter of fact, there are only two people that I can think of in the Bible where no unkind or unfortunate thing is said about them. You know who those two people are? Joseph 
in the Old Testament, who is, of course, the young brother who is despised and rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, and winds up in a jail, and eventually becomes the most powerful man next to the Pharaoh of Egypt. But God uses that series of circumstances in order to deliver the nation. The second person is Daniel. Sarah's journey of faith experiences bumps along the way because she begins to think what sometimes we must think. How can God's promises come true in my life when my life is so messed up? Or when there's so many problems or when there's so much difficulty? Whether it's a problem in your marriage, whether it's a problem at work, whether it's a problem in your singleness or in your youth or in your old age, you pick whatever it is that you think is the problem. And for Sarah, it's doubt. Os Guinness said, quote, if faith does not resolve doubt, doubt will dissolve faith. I like that. You see, doubt can serve as a corrosive agent, eating away in our hearts and lives as we consider the promises of God, as we consider the promises that are made to us. We're given a promise. We're offered an opportunity to believe. Andrew Murray said, feed your faith and starve your doubts to death. I love the little poem that goes like this. I don't know who wrote it. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes. Faith answers I. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're going to make it in your Christian life? I think I've said to you before, have have you ever wondered that you really do get to heaven and then all of heaven realizes who you really are and they decide to kick you out? Nothing could be more terrifying than that. I've actually had people ask me, is it possible that you could go to heaven and get kicked out? My answer, of course, is no. According to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. God promises to make you like Jesus. In what way? Do you think Jesus could get kicked out of heaven? No. And that's the key. If Jesus could get kicked out of heaven, so could you. Because your love and your trust and your confidence is in him. Not in you. Later in Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 5, we read these amazing words. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his own who was born to him. Whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. 
Now, I want you to just think about this because maybe you haven't thought about it. In Genesis chapter 18, God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 21, God kept his promise. But between Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 21, a long period of time went by. A long period of time. A year went by, and then 10 years went by, and then 20 years went by. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 5, we learn that Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Frances Vandervelde in her book, Women in the Bible, writes, quote, 25 years after the first theophany, that means the supernatural appearance of God talking about his appearance at the tent. 25 years after the first theophany, the promised son was born to Sarah. Sarah was now about 90 years old and humanly speaking past the age of bearing children. It was divine grace and power alone that brought the joy, the light, the laughter of little Isaac into her life. Faith had triumphed and there was happiness in the tent of Sarah, unquote. I love that. Because Sarah's doubt, Sarah's stumbling, Sarah's setback isn't what made God's promises true or false. By the way, Paul will later speak of Sarah as a type of grace. She's the free woman and the Jerusalem from above. When I was preparing this, I I went back to Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 31. And the reason why I did is because I thought about Paul the Apostle. I thought about Paul the Apostle reading the passage in Genesis. I thought about the Apostle Paul thinking about the passage in Genesis. In chapter 4 of verse 22. Well, beginning in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4. And beginning in verse 21. (laughs) I'm even going to go back to verse 19. I can't resist. Look what it says. Paul writes, My little children... For whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. The reason why I bring it up is because most guys don't really talk about being pregnant. Most guys, even from a spiritual metaphorical standpoint, don't appeal to their uterus because guys don't have a uterus. But when Paul says... My little children from whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. You've got to understand something. The Galatians were in big trouble. The Galatians were in big trouble because there was this almost supernatural desire on the parts of the Galatians as they were being seduced by the Judaizers who had come to Jerusalem, who kept telling them over and over again, you've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You have to act like a Jew and talk like a Jew and speak like a Jew and and observe the rituals like Jewish people. So he's a little bit put off. And he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not hear the law? 
For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do, do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. Paul sees the story of Abraham. He sees the two stories of Ishmael and Isaac. In the story, Paul says the bondwoman is Hagar. Bondwoman means slave. And the free woman is Sarah. Ishmael was born as a result of compromise and unbelief and human reasoning and a lack of faith. Isaac, on the other hand, was given to Abraham and Sarah by the promise of God. So Paul suggests the story has a deeper meaning. It has a symbolic meaning. The real significance of the events reveals something else. The two women represent two covenants. Hagar, the covenant of the law. And Sarah, the covenant of grace. You know, it was interesting to me. Moses receives the law on Sinai. Most observant Jews would say, unfair. You're drawing an unfair conclusion. In the Arabic language I discovered, the word hagar or hegar in the Arabic language means rock. And do you realize that to this very day, the Muslims in the Middle East call Mount Sinai hegar, the rock. The covenant given at Sinai didn't produce freedom. It produced slavery. Why would Paul make such a claim? He would make the claim because what does the law reveal? When you're honest with yourself, when nobody else is looking and nobody else really cares about whether or not you're going to tell the truth, the law reveals that you're a lawbreaker. The moment that the Bible says to you, I I would like you to do this. I would like you to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then the moment comes, a day arrives, and you just simply don't do that. The covenant at Sinai produced slavery. And so Hagar, a slave girl, Paul sees a fitting symbol for slavery. Hagar represented 
Think carefully. The earthly Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation, the center of the unsaved Jews, unsaved Jews seeking a righteousness obtained by ritual, obtained by legal observance, obtained by keeping the law. The reason why all of this becomes important because the writer of Hebrews and Paul and the writer in Genesis is bringing all of this together because remember what the writer is doing. He's speaking to a group of Jewish people who are under enormous pressure to abandon Christ and abandon Christianity and abandon grace for religion. The unsaved Jew and the children of the unsaved Jew and their followers were in bondage. And it's not limited to just the Jewish people. The unsaved Gentile who's caught in a trap of religion, thinking that religion will give them a right relationship with God, that religion will be the door of worship that opens and the walk that is needed and the witness provided to the world. But what we've discovered over and over again is that real faith, true faith, saving faith, is when you place your confidence in Christ. For Paul to link the unsaved Jew and the earthly Jerusalem with Hagar rather than Sarah and Ishmael rather than Isaac must have been like cutting open your arm and pouring salt into the wound. It was a bitter, harsh rebuke. In Galatians 4.26, Paul writes, But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. What an interesting statement. But the Jerusalem above is free. This is the one in heaven. This is the one that you have access through because of the blood of Jesus. In verse 27 of Galatians chapter 4, it says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. In verse 28, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Verse 29, But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Verse 30, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of free. Now, I want you to think this through. Paul is quoting a passage in Isaiah to point out that one day the spiritual descendants of Jesus are going to outnumber the the physical descendants of Abraham. Sarah spent most of her life barren. I got saved when I was 16 years old. For the first 15 years of my life, my life was spiritually barren. You know, maybe you got saved when you were a very young child, or maybe you got saved as a teenager. Maybe you got saved as a young adult. Maybe tragically, horribly, terribly, uh, bitterly, you got saved in your 30s or 40s. Maybe you even got saved in your 50s or 60s. 
Maybe you've never even been saved. And your life has been a life bitter and barren. Hagar was the woman who had a husband, Abraham. True believers are not born Jews or after the will of the flesh or after the will of man, but of God. Paul is contrasting two births, natural birth, and he basically says natural birth isn't what counts. What counts is spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. We stand fast in our liberty because of Jesus. Paul encouraged the Galatians to avoid getting entangled in the yoke of bondage, which is a reference to Jewish legalism. How do we know that? Because Paul goes on to describe the life of a Christian as a life that is lived justified by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, in what Jesus has done in his sacrifice And so in this text, in Hebrews, Sarah receives power. She receives strength to believe God. There may have been times in your life where you, quite frankly, didn't believe what the Bible said about your sinful condition, about the solution to the problem of sin, about your own rebellion and disobedience, Perhaps you even believed that there was no way you could ever change. That there was no way that you could ever be different. That you could never, ever be what God wanted you to be. Is Paul condemning Arabs or the descendants of Ishmael? I don't think so. That's not the point of the passage. He's using the historical event as a picture of the present and the future, that there are two kinds of people on the earth, those born after the flesh and those who are born after the spirit. And for those who are born after the spirit, you have grace and mercy and freedom and strength and power in the person of Jesus. And so Paul is encouraging the Galatians to avoid getting entangled in the yoke of bondage. So question, we know that Sarah experienced a crisis of faith. Not only did she have doubts at the beginning, but did she also have a moment of doubt that caused her to think that maybe God's promise wasn't going to be fulfilled through her, that she believed that God had made a promise to Abraham, but God didn't really make a promise to her. I think that there was a crisis of faith. How else do we explain Sarah's invitation to Abraham to take her maidservant Hagar? Do you think she did it in a faith-filled gesture? Obviously, that's not what happened. Sarah's invitation to Abraham to take her maid suggests that her faith failed. And by the way, we can't let Abraham off the hook either. Was Abraham present 
when the Lord said, it's going to be your wife. It's going to be Sarah. I've made a promise to you, and I've made a promise to your wife. Did her faith fail? In one sense, yes. Her faith may have failed, but God's promise never failed. That should encourage you. Because you may have done something that you absolutely regret. You may have acted in a way that was so totally inconsistent with what the claims of Christ seem to indicate. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Question, do men of faith and do women of faith sometimes experience a lapse of faith? Does our lapse of faith in any way undermine, negate, or otherwise make void the promises of God? answer is no. Jesus is the Lord. He is the wonderful Lord. He is the gracious Lord. He is the ever-present Lord, the everlasting Lord. Did Sarah doubt that God would make good his promise through her? Apparently so. Both Abraham and Sarah entertained the notion that compromise might be the answer in order to help God along in the promise. Thank you for that laugh. Because guess what? Does compromise with the promises of God help God? It does not. Perhaps Abraham could impregnate Sarah's handmaid and help God with his promise. Dare I ask you, how did that turn out? It was a disaster. For 13 long years, Abraham received no fresh word from the Lord. See, part of what I want you to do is to remember what happened. He compromised. Genesis chapter 16, verse 16. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. He compromises with the promise of God. And this is what often happens when we compromise with the word of God and the promises of God. You want to compromise with the word of God? You want to compromise with the promises of God? It's God will sometimes say to you, so what I have to say to you, you don't want to listen to. You don't care about it. What I've said and the promises that I've made, you just want to ignore and reject those promises. And guess what? Abraham doesn't hear from God for a very long time. John Phillips writes, quote, the solution The solution was to believe God. Something both Abraham and Sarah did with the eventual result that the impossible happened. For what is impossible with men is not impossible with God, unquote. I want you to pause for a moment and think about that because it gives us a clue and an insight into what we can do if we've experienced a lapse of faith or a momentary setback, or a failure or a disappointment. 
The biblical solution is to stop what you're doing and to start believing God. It's to walk away from that sin. It's to repent. It's not too late. You can turn from the sin and you can turn to the Lord. And you can believe what he has to say about Jesus. And so we see this trusting faith. Look what it says, and we're going to go quickly. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now the question, how old was Sarah? Some suggest that she was 90 years old. I want you to just think about that for just a moment. This, this morning, I, I went to GuinnessWorldRecords.com. I asked myself the question, who's the oldest woman who's ever given live birth? At, according to GuinnessWorldRecords.com, it lists Maria del Carmen Lara, that she gave live birth. She was involved in in vitro fertilization. She gave a live birth by cesarean section to two boys, Christian and Paul, At the age of 66 years, 358 days. Ouch. Other sources list Rajo, Devi, Lohan. She was 69 years old. There was another listing, Omari Panwar of India. She was 70 years old. In modern history, we don't have a, a record of anyone older than that giving live birth. Question. Oh, by the way, when Rajo Devi Lohan gave, no, no, it was Maria del Carmen Lara, when she gave birth at the age of 66 years and 358 days, when she went in for the procedure, she lied about her age. She told the doctors that she was only 55. How many 90 year old women? Forget just having a baby. Won't you be grateful just to live to be 90? Question. Who made the promise to Sarah? The Lord, God, the creator, God, the sovereign, God, the Lord of the universe. At some point in her journey, away from doubt and away from unbelief to belief, she woke up at some point and said, the God of the universe has made this promise to me. And I have a couple of choices. To trust him or not to trust him. To believe him or not to believe him. The Bible says she judged him faithful. She began to consider the source of the promise. The person making the promise. And she began to believe that God was able to do the impossible. Under most circumstances, a 70-year-old woman can't have a baby. Under most circumstances, I can't imagine an 80-year-old woman having a baby. An 85-year-old woman having a baby. The promise did not seem possible. The promise must have seemed illogical, absurd, unbelievable. 
inconceivable, pun intended. Think about that. Anatomically impossible, reason suggested not possible, nature screamed not possible. Now I want you to think about your circumstance and I want to think about your life and I want you to think about your problem. I want you to think about your journey and you're probably wondering, can God keep his promise to me in the person of Jesus when it doesn't even look possible? She trusts the promise of God. In order for God's word to come true, it's going to require a miracle. And guess what happens? An impossible faith leads to an impossible birth. You know, it should prompt you to ask yourself that question. How do you begin such a journey? Sarah judged, that means counted on God being faithful. Sarah counted on God's ability to speak, to tell the truth and keep the promise. And guess what? Each and every one of us make that same faith journey. Has God told us the truth about ourself, about our spiritual condition? Has he told us the truth about Jesus? You know, many of you remember the story how Jesus had an encounter with a rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 24. Those of you familiar with the story, he asks the million dollar question, good teacher, what good thing do I have to do to, that I may have eternal life? And you'll recall Jesus' answer. You know, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Do you realize at that point, Jesus is either saying, I'm not good or I am God. How else do you explain all of the passage that said that he is good? He basically says, but if you want to enter into your life, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler said, which ones? <laughs> Jesus said, mm, don't murder. Okay, I'm good with that one. Don't commit adultery, good with that one. Don't steal, good with that one. Not bearing false witness against your neighbor, good with that one. Honor your mom and dad, good with that one. Love your neighbor as yourself, here's what he actually said. All these things I've kept from my youth. Let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, just for a moment. And just pretend, just for a moment, that it might be true what he said. And then Jesus said, he, he asked the question, what still do I lack? And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, that means complete. Go, sell what you have, give it to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now imagine Jesus shows up and he says that same thing to you. I want you to abandon everything that you have. He doesn't say, oh, what I want you to do is sell all that you have and sow into my ministry. Give it to me. He, actually, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, give it to the poor. And he says, come and follow me. By the way, if he had taken up Jesus on the offer, 
Would he have had the most exciting adventure ever? Can you imagine having that same invitation? Come. I'm going to take you on a journey, and the journey is going to be exciting. The Bible says that he went away sorrowful because it was really, really rich. And then Jesus said to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard it, the Bible says they were greatly astonished. And then they asked the question, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men, this is impossible. But with God, you know the rest. All things are possible. Truth, it's not even possible for me to be saved or you to be saved. Apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel, apart from his grace, apart from his love. But think about what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying because of his love and because of his grace and because of his mercy and because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his great love for you, it's possible. The impossible becomes possible. Jesus said in Mark 9, 23... If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Believes what? Believes what God says. Believes God's promises. Think about what's happening. The Lord gives Sarah the strength and power to believe him. In the Bible, a man had a son who was demon-possessed, and the Lord told the man he could help him if he would believe. And you'll remember what the man said. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man had a weak faith. But Jesus must have given him believing faith. And Jesus heals the boy in Mark 9, 17. Imagine you're talking to your family. You're talking to your friends. Maybe you're even speaking to yourself. And you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you believe that God can change you? Do you believe that God can change you, that he can save you? In Proverbs 21, 1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of waters, he turns it wherever he wishes. I have to believe that in your king's heart, in your princess heart, God can take the waters that are flowing through your mind and thoughts and life and alter the course. The Lord protects, the Lord empowers, the Lord befuddles enemies, the Lord strengthens and builds our character. He heals us, he imparts wisdom to us, he gives our life purpose and meaning. And so look what it says in verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead... 
That's a description, by the way, of Abraham. (laughs) We're born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand by the seashore. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, which reads, Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. Your descendants will be as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. A willing faith, a believing faith, a trusting faith becomes a rewarding faith. Sarah believes. Sarah trusts. Sarah obeys. And a little pooch starts to form in her 90-year-old belly. I wonder if she had an any or an Audi. Belly button pokes out, racing stripe right on her stomach, and all of a sudden her belly starts to grow. The child isn't there yet, but the promise has been made, and the promise has been kept. The gift of the seed of Isaac. And Isaac will become a nation and a multitude. But the author is also pointing out that there's two seed because Isaac will produce Jacob, who will produce Judah, who will produce David. And through the lineage of David, Jesus will come and there will be a multitude of physical descendants of Abraham. But there will be an even greater multitude of spiritual descendants who are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit because they believed the truth that God was going to provide a Messiah. Sarah not only believed the impossible, but she receives the reward. She receives the impossible. And Israel exists in part today because one woman decided that she was going to believe God for the promises in her life. But make no mistake about it. If you identify yourself as a Christian, if you identify yourself not just simply as a believer in Christ, but a person who actually loves him and follows him, if you identify yourself as a person who believes in Christ, but for whatever reason you don't live your life as if that's true, then I wonder about you. But if you believe Jesus... If you believe Jesus, then guess what? You're in part a recipient of the promise that was made to Sarah because she believed God. It seems impossible that sinful human beings could be saved under any circumstance. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Faith gave Abraham and Sarah power to have a child, and when they were as good as dead... Abraham and his pilgrim descendants did not turn back as the Hebrew leaders were tempted to do, but they kept their eyes on God and they pressed forward to victory, unquote. And that's the context of the book of Hebrews as he's urging them not to look back, but to look forward. The writer of Hebrews describes Abraham as one man, him as good as dead, That's the Holy Spirit's description 
of Abraham's reproductive capacity. You know why this becomes important for each and every one of us? Because imagine if you had to look inside of yourself and say, I want to change, but I can't change myself. I feel like I'm dead inside. I feel empty. Dead. Then you're a good candidate for a miracle. You're a good candidate for the impossible. Imagine you had problems conceiving a child. And you go to a fertility clinic. And you see a jar, a specimen jar marked Abraham. Is that the jar that you're going to go with? The writer of Hebrews says, That's, he's as good as dead. Barren. Dead. The apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well. When we look at the relationship between Abraham, his courage, and his cowardice, his carnality, his failure, his disappointment, God still uses him. He still calls these two together. Does God promise, by the way, a baby to every barren couple? What's the answer? No. But does God promise a savior for every barren, dead, empty soul who will come to Jesus by faith and say, I'm dead inside and I want to experience life and love and forgiveness and hope and I want Jesus to be real in my life. Will he keep that promise? The answer is yes. As Corey Ten Boom said, faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, receives the impossible. In chapter 11, Abel worships on God's terms. Enoch walks with God on God's terms. Noah provides a witness and a warning based on what God said concerning judgment. Abraham hears from God and receives a promise and believes the promise and lives a pilgrim life with a purpose, becomes a partner and partaker with God's people. His partner in part is Sarah. Sarah joins Abraham who at first doubts God, then believes God. The circumstances are impossible, but then she considers that God makes a promise that's under normal circumstances, too impossible to believe. Reason argues, not possible. Biology argues, not possible. In order for God's promise to come true, it's going to require a miracle. And for the person who comes to Jesus by faith, God promises a miracle. 
a miracle of hope, a miracle of regeneration. The miracle that the Holy Spirit will come inside of your heart and cleanse your sin and then empower you to love him and walk with him and worship him and be a witness for him and obey him. And that you can begin to live a life that no one thought possible except for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would begin to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That we would look at these people and their lives and we would take comfort that you spoke to them, you made promises to them, and then you kept your promises. That, Lord, you'll speak to us. And you'll extend to us promises. And we can believe that you're going to keep your word. You promised to save us in Jesus and you did. You promised to fill us with the Holy Spirit and you did. You promised to strengthen us for the task at hand and you did. You promised to be there in our doubt and our failure and our disappointment and pick us up and you did. And so Father, again, we pray that you would help us to be men and women of faith, trusting Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.